Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, lingering questions. He knew. Why did he say the opposite of what he knew? As a new report says the Prime Minister was warned about Chinese government interference, the calls for an independent inquiry continue to grow. Did the Trudeau government ignore the warnings? Also... We're not out of the woods yet. After eight consecutive increases, the Bank of Canada is holding its key rate. Does that mean inflation is finally getting under control or just a breather before more pain down the road? We will speak to two senior economists. And Jean-Yves Duclos and the federal health deal. With most provinces now signed on, will Canadians finally get the medical attention they need? We'll speak with the health minister. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. A new report is once again raising questions about China interference and whether the Prime Minister knew about money being funneled to political candidates here in Canada. According to Global News, two briefings were prepared by the Privy Council office for the Liberal government. They apparently warned about a covert campaign, a revelation that led to more heated debate in the House today. Prime Minister said repeatedly, that he had no knowledge of funds from the dictatorship in Beijing going to federal election candidates. Today we learned that is not true. His department prepared a briefing that said a large clandestine transfer of funds earmarked for the federal election from the PRC in Toronto was transferred to an elected provincial government official via a staff member of a 2019 federal candidate. Why did the Prime Minister say the opposite of what he knew to be true. The right honourable Prime Minister. The issue of foreign interference in our democracies and our institutions is extraordinarily serious, uh, and that's why, as a government, we have always taken it incredibly seriously, including by building and creating new mechanisms to oversee and to ensure uh, that we can counter uh, that, uh, that interference and demonstrate uh, to Canadians that they can have confidence in their institutions. But on the specific question, as both myself and the NSIA stated last fall, we have no information on any federal candidates receiving money from China, and that continues to remain the case. Well, with more, we're now joined by security expert Michael Kempa. Michael, good to see you. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Michael. Listen, I want to begin with that new report that says the Privy Council did, in fact, prepare two briefings for the government, uh, essentially warning the Prime Minister and his senior aides of a covert network that was working to interfere in the 2019 vote. I'm wondering, what questions does this revelation raise for you? Well, it becomes increasingly implausible that the prime minister's office and the prime minister himself uh, were not aware of concerns that were being raised by CSIS about infiltration of nominations processes around the greater Toronto area. The question for me then becomes, how did they receive that information and how was it interpreted? Why was nothing done, in other words? So if I was to think that through, the sort of logic that I would expect the prime minister would deploy, he'd think to himself, all right, Has there been anything here that violates the Elections Act? And the answer would probably be no, 
because this is intelligence, not evidence that could be used in a court. So the prime minister may have said, or his advisors may have said to him, if there's no criminal malfeasance here, you prime minister are not liable. And then they may have done a little bit of a calculation where they said to themselves, it's best we deal with this on our own, essentially allow an election to go forward and deal with it in-house rather than create a scandal around something which is not a criminal matter as yet. Well, let me pick up on what you just said, though. The, the, the difference between intelligence versus evidence that might be used in a criminal case. Because when you talk about intelligence, there is, of course, the, the facts or the details that fall under sensitive information. So, so how much leeway should be given to the prime minister here? depends on how much intelligence and how compelling it was. It was served by CSIS uh, to the Prime Minister's office, to the PCO, and to the Prime Minister himself. So intelligence can mean that simply a couple of human sources tipped CSIS off and said, there looks like there's something that might be going on here with the Chinese consulate sending either money or voters to particular candidates. So that wouldn't be particularly credible. But if CSIS had looked into it and found that there were many witnesses and many complaints, it's at that point that there would be less leeway to the prime minister. You would expect that you would take action on more reputable intelligence coming in. So the prime minister has ordered, as you know, two investigations now, also said that a special rapporteur uh, will essentially suggest a way forward. Can the prime minister afford to take this more cautious route, do you think? Um, I would think that going straight to an inquiry seems to be what everybody is clamoring for. I understand that impulse. We want to get to the bottom of this and figure out who knew what when, and is there anybody who basically now has to be accountable for any malfeasance? Now, if there is something that looks very bad for the governing Liberal Party and so forth, they may want to create a small delay where we look at the broader systems that might explain some of their decisions that were made that without understanding the context would look especially questionable. In other words, if we come to understand that this is the type of thing that's actually quite widespread, it plagues all political parties, then if it's subsequently found that the prime minister made a mistake, Canadians may be more forgiving. I think that's the logic for why they want to go this delay route. Well, you yourself did uh, run for a nomination uh, in the past. Do you think this is more widespread than, than, than what we're seeing right now? Well, yes, uh, based on my experience. Looking around, see, nominations, as we know, private uh, political parties are private entities, and nominations take place according to their own rules and how they choose to enforce those rules. So on the ground manipulating nominations to suit their party interests, it makes them very vulnerable to infiltration. The two big things are short notice on times and locations for nominations. Because if you don't know when and where your nomination will take place, all of a sudden that contest is very vulnerable to be taken over by anybody who can promise a candidate two or 300 people on a bus on short notice. So that could mean a foreign government, it could be a business interest, could be an ideological interest. And candidates, in a sense, are quite dependent on accepting those offers because if they don't, those people will just be sent to their competitors. It becomes a nasty business in that sense. Mm -hmm. So how can Canada actually rebuild confidence in the electoral system then? You know, the, that might be the, the, the result of a public inquiry. That might be the result of this independent rapporteur. How might confidence be rebuilt in the system? 
Well, the biggest one is quickly to identify these known shortcomings in the in the chain of electoral process. Start with nominations, clean them up. Start with cleansing the donations process. And then if the rapporteur finds that there is sufficient evidence to suggest that there was some malfeasance here, in a public capacity, people must be held to account. If you create doubts or the idea that people's votes mean little because the decisions are essentially being called by either foreign powers or other special interests, voter turnout will fall through the basement. You may as well hand the sledgehammer to the opponents of democracy. Michael Kampa, thank you for this. Really appreciate the time tonight. Thank you kindly. As expected, the Bank of Canada maintained its policy rate at 4.5% today, marking the first time in a year that the bank did not raise its rate. A pause to allow more time for the bank to assess the impact of its earlier rate hikes on the Canadian economy. Take a listen to the reaction from Finance Minister Christian Freeland. We're not out of the woods yet. Inflation is still too high and interest rates are really high and have gone up extremely fast. These are real challenges for Canadians. I hear about them from people every single day. So I would be, you know, either naive or a liar if I didn't admit to you that, yeah, there will be some bumps ahead of us. And I don't think that anyone can perfectly predict exactly what those bumps will be or where we will encounter them. But what I can say, and I believe this with absolute conviction, is that there is no country in the world better placed than Canada to get through this particular challenging moment well, with more, we're now joined by Armin Yalnesian. She is an economist and Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Workers, and Pedro Antunes, Chief Economist with the Conference Board of Canada. Hello to both of you. Hello, Michael. Hi, Pedro. Hi, Armin. So, Armin, you know, the Bank of Canada rate, as we said, remains unchanged for now, but they do hold out the possibility of more rate hikes down the road. Just how far down the road are we talking about? What exactly are they watching out for? I think there's two things they're watching out for. First of all, how far, how fast uh, will the Federal Reserve go? Because what happens in the United States affects the value of our dollar and consequently the inflation that we import uh, with the goods that we purchase in American dollars. And the second thing they're looking for is um, the pace at which the Canadian economy responds to the, rate, the eight rate hikes that they put in place in 2022. Uh, they have said repeatedly that it takes between 18 and 24 months to see the full impact of those rate hikes. And we're nowhere near that yet. So I guess they're watching to see how far the economy cools. You know that in the last print, we hit 0% growth. And so you, everybody's looking for that soft, that mythical soft landing where you don't, you drive up costs, but you don't trigger a recession. And so far, so good. But you never know when the when the pain point starts being yeah. felt. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Pedro, it's interesting because, you know, the, the, the consumer prices have dropped since last summer when uh, inflation hit that four decade high. But, you know, CPI still up uh, year over year. Core inflation is still above the bank's 2% target. So, so that said, and given what we just heard from Irene, 
Will the bank really have any other choice but to raise rates again? Should the debate really be uh, when rather than if? Well, no, I agree with Armin. I think a lot of the final decisions will come down to not the success here at home necessarily, but you know what happens in the U.S. And I think in the U.S. they're having more problems. And as we just heard, they uh, they're uh, now suggesting that they may raise rates south of the border. I think otherwise, if the U.S. is successful, if we do see, for instance, in the next uh, in the next report from uh, from the U.S. Uh, inflation coming down more more uh, how should I say more uh, successfully, uh, then I think the monetary policy in Canada can stay where it is for now. Uh, as Armin pointed out, it takes time before we have the full impact on on consumers. Uh, we know that households in Canada are. Are much more indebted than the U.S. Uh, we take five-year terms on our mortgage typically, and so before the full pain of these increases is felt, it's going to take some time. So I think a wait and see is the right approach right now for Canada. Uh, and hopefully, if we are successful, um, you know, the next move will be one to lower rates and, and uh, allow us to, to see some growth again. Okay, I'm going to pick up on that one a little bit later. But you know, you both have raised now the United States, and of course, uh, the U.S. Fed Chair uh, Jerome Powell. He was testifying yesterday in D.C. Uh, he continues to testify today. And he is, as both of you point out, preparing the U.S. for a rate hike because he's concerned about loosening monetary policy too quickly. He says history shows us that it, it, it bites us if we do that too quickly. And he doesn't think the job of taming inflation is quite yet done. So, so I mean, how should Canadians interpret that? If we are watching the U.S. very closely, what does that mean for us? I think there's a bigger issue that's going on right now, not only in the US and Canada, but in Europe, where there is a kind of rethink of whether monetary policy and hiking rates is the right formula for taming inflation. Inflation has come down since the summer. It's not because the Bank of Canada raised rates or any central bank raised rates. The number one thing that has led to inflation coming down is energy prices falling from where they were last summer. They're starting to go back up again now that China has reopened its economy. And we are not, we're not seeing any benefits of higher rates on the number one thing that is, uh, that eats up our budget, which is housing costs. In fact, the bank, the central bank policy of raising rates is making it more expensive for housing costs, whether you're, you've got a mortgage or whether you're renting, uh, in everywhere in the world. So we, we understand that the formula is, you raise rates to cool the economy, to let supply catch up. But supply in oil and supply in food has got nothing to do with what central banks are doing. And there was this word that the central bank governor used last rate announcement, humility. And I think there is this moment of rethinking, okay, yeah, central banks are tasked with, they've got one job, price stability. and. Did they miss the mark? No, they didn't. We have this, a pandemic and a war. So these things are not the sort of things that you normally guide an economy through. This isn't an economic cycle. This is a once in a lifetime experience of opening and then shutting an economy and then reopening it again. So there's huge amounts of supply shocks that central banks cannot control and add on top of that a war. So. I think there is a legitimate rethinking what is the role of monetary policy here and how far, how much further should we be raising rates if you're really not doing anything to help supply catch up? 
Oh, oh. All you're doing is raising costs okay, well, and putting people out of work. Well, Pedro, I'm wondering how you would respond to that because, you, you know, you, you, Armin is, is saying this. But again, at the same time, we're seeing Powell uh, believing that you still have to keep raising interest rates to because he's using the traditional route in terms of mm -hmm. trying to control inflation. Well, I mean, there, there's no doubt that uh, I, I do believe monetary policy will still work. I mean, it, it is affecting some aspects of inflationary pressures. Um, it's certainly the commodity price shock that we saw was, some, was something on its own. Uh, we have seen, for the most part, commodity prices come back down to pre-Russian invasion levels. I'm hopeful that we'll start to see that filter through all the way to the retail, especially when we're talking about food prices, all the way to the retail level. Um, but the other piece on the supply side, it's very interesting because, uh, you know, I do think there's a supply side issue. The reason that we're seeing central banks panicked, and in fact, central banks all over the world panic, is that we've stimulated an awful lot of, uh, of income into the economy through, uh, through this pandemic, uh, and now we're having trouble getting uh, essentially supply to catch up with demand. Uh, and there's where I differ perhaps on some other, you know, some other viewpoints on the labor market uh, strength that we've seen in, in recent months. Uh, I think a lot of that labor market strength uh, is essentially due to, an, you know, really a surge in immigration that we've had over the past year uh, that is allowing employers now to essentially catch up with, uh, uh, with the demand, essentially fill those job vacancies that they've been desperate to fill to help catch up with demand. So I think on the supply of, of services side, domestically, uh, that's a positive uh, as well for, for inflationary pressures. Okay, well, let me pick up, uh, before we run out of time, let me pick up on the one point you did make earlier. You, you believe, uh, you at least stated that we could be looking at lower rates down the road. What type of timeline are we actually looking at, Pedro? Well, I, I mean, obviously, everything will depend on inflation and not just inflation in Canada, but inflation in the U.S. will be very important. Uh, but if we are to believe that the full impact on households will be felt in the next 12 to 18 months, uh, then, you know, possibly we'll start to see some easing on that brake pedal uh, at the end of this uh, at, at the end of this year. In our forecast, we have, actually have a, uh, our thinking is at the beginning of next year. Uh, but yeah, it'll depend on the success, of course. Mm -hmm. Quickly, Armin, what do you think? I think it's unlikely to see a reduction in rates because I don't think we're going to easily get to that 2% target. And I don't think they'll ease up on rates until they come closer to their 2% target. But we've got so many headwinds in reaching that 2% target that I don't, I don't see any signs of interest rates coming down. And let's not forget that we've just come out of about a decade of the lowest interest rates, not in the last 20 years or 40 years or 100 years, but in thousands of years. It was the most bizarre period of free money that was available that distorted markets. And it is time to have those rates higher. The question is, how much lower can they go to feed the need to grow the economy faster? I don't know the answer to that. Okay, well, we're watching. Armin, Pedro, thank you for this. Really appreciate the time tonight. You're thank welcome. You. Let's take a look now at the other stories making headlines today. The alleged conduct of a Supreme Court justice is under scrutiny. The Canadian Judicial Council asking BC's Chief Justice to review a complaint involving Justice Russell Brown. The council is offering no details on the allegations, but Justice Brown has been on leave from his duties since February the 1st. That is one day after the Supreme Court learned of the complaint. The European Commission president called on the Governor-General today as her Canadian visit wrapped up. 
Ursula von der Leyen meeting with Mary Simon at Rideau Hall the morning after her address to Parliament. Von der Leyen is now moving on to Washington. And in the House of Commons today, a goodbye from Mark Garneau. After 15 years as an MP, the former cabinet minister and first Canadian in space is resigning his seat in Montreal. Nothing is perfect in this world, but I'd like to think that I always did my best to try to make it better. And although my gaze will remain on the future, as it always has, I hope that you, the young people of this country, will fashion that future and protect our democracy. Now it's time for me to go. It's been an honour serving my country alongside all of you. Thank you and farewell. Well, for the past month, the federal health minister, Jean-Yves Duclos, has been crisscrossing the country, finalizing those health care deals with the provinces and the territories. Now, there remains a few holdouts, but most have said yes to an immediate $2 billion top-up to this year's Canada Health Transfer and $196 billion over the next 10 years. Well, joining us now is the federal minister of health, Jean-Yves Duclos. Uh, minister Duclos, thank you for being here today. Thank you, Michael, and hello to everyone. Now, you've been busy uh, traveling the country, signing the individual health agreements with the provinces, but, but still, Quebec and the territories have not signed on. Uh, what's the holdup there? Well, we're looking forward to announce the receipt of the letters with uh, acknowledging agreement in principle on the offer that the Prime Minister made a few weeks ago. I think these letters will come quite quickly and we'll then be able to make them public. Okay, so, so quite quickly, so, so we won't be waiting long? No, no, because lots of work has been already done. No, in fact, the work extends to the last year and a half, uh, working with all provinces and all territories in preparing for the important announcement that was made by the Prime Minister a few weeks ago, and more, more importantly, the important work that we now need to do together. Which, of course, would be huge, because it means then that every jurisdiction in the country, once those agreements are in place, are essentially accepting the $46 billion put forward by your government to, to deal with the health care crisis. But, you know, when you look at that dollar figure, it is still less than what the provinces were hoping for. Are you worried that will give them an excuse, if you will, to, to not actually meet the challenge of the health care crisis right now without the money that they wanted? Uh, two things on that. First, they were asking for 35% of, of provincial health care expenditures. That indeed has been the norm over the last 40 years when, in, when we include tax points. And we're getting back to 35% now with the investment that the federal government is making. Second, these dollars are, are meaningless if they don't come with results. Now, these dollars come from the same pockets of the same taxpayers, so they need to generate results for those things to be meaningful for patients and workers. And that's why, with the dollars, now comes the work that provinces will need to do in, re in writing up their action plans. Action plans, for instance, on how many more Canadians will have access to family medicine, how many more Canadians will have access to mental health care, especially for younger Canadians, how many workers will, need to be, will be able to hire and therefore be able to reduce backlogs, and finally, how fast are we going to modernize our health data system so that workers, nurses, physicians, and lab technicians can better work together and better care for patients. Mm -hmm. And I take what you're saying about the 35%, of course, how the federal government interprets that 35% and calculates to it different than what the provinces have been arguing. Uh, are you worried, though, given the, the gap in, in that calculation, 
that without the calculation or basing it on what the provinces were saying, that it opens up to more innovation that might equate to more private health care delivery. Again, again, two things. The 35 percent is the 35 percent that provinces uh, have been used have been using when they point to the past. They said if we include tax points, that's been 35 percent. We want that being brought back to 35 percent, and if we add the new dollars, we'll be back to 35 percent. But again, more importantly, is what those results will be with those incremental federal dollars. And you're right to pointing out that one way to mitigate the uh, the trend, the pressures on the the healthcare system is to invest in the public healthcare system. There are other ways to, to deal with emergencies and we recognize that this is entirely provincial jurisdiction, but supporting the public healthcare delivery of healthcare services is key with this agreement. Well, we are going, we've been very clear, very open to with provinces and territories that these dollars are, are intended to support the public delivery of healthcare services in Canada. Public health care delivery, but is it an acceptance that not every single component of health care can be delivered publicly, just these dollars will be dedicated to that? And that's, that's understandable. The provinces and territories have been using the private delivery of health care services for, for years and decades. You know, physicians or self-employed uh, workers. Uh, there are many other health care workers who are also self-employed and therefore privately delivering health care services for Canadians. So do you think the language around the debate has to change? Because right now there's still very much this, this debate in this country, public versus private, and really what we're talking about is a mixed system. Do you think the language around the debate has to change when we talk about the healthcare crisis and how we get out to the other side of it? The objectives of our collaboration need to be very clear. As a health, as federal health minister, one of my obligations is to make sure that the requirements of the Canada Health Act are, are respected by all provinces and territories and by the federal government in particular. And one of these key requirements is that people don't pay with their credit card when they need to have access to medically necessary health care services. Another uh, requirement is that this, these, this, these services are equitably accessible by all Canadians. But these are requirements understood by all health ministers, and I'm going to continue to make sure that this is the case. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the premiers have asked for a review process, going back to the dollars here. They're, they're worried about falling over the so-called fiscal cliff uh, when their deals expire. Uh, how are you going to address that? Will you give them that review? The answer is yes, there will be a review uh, in 2025, 2026, both a review of the investments, including the investments by the provinces and territories, and then a review of the results which we will have achieved by then. Again, dollars matter. They come from the same pockets, the same taxpayers. What matters even more is what results these dollars are going to bring for workers and patients. Mm -hmm. As you noted, uh, of course, healthcare delivery in this country is, is jurisdictionally that of the provinces. But as the federal health minister, certainly there are Canadians right across this country that are struggling with very common concerns. A lack of primary care physician, uh, having to wait in, in emergency clinics, trying to see a doctor, uh, preventative health care is thrown out the window if you don't ha actually have uh, a primary health care provider. What do you say to Canadians right now, as the federal health minister, and the hopes of your government with this investment, what it actually does to improve their lives? 
Exactly that, uh, Michael, you said it so well. Access to family health teams, access to primary care, access to family medicine is a cornerstone of a well-functioning healthcare system in Canada. We need every Canadian to have access to a family health team because if they don't, as you said, they end up waiting and waiting and when they fall sick and very sick, they have to go to the emergency department and that's not where people should be treated first. So that's why a key element of our agreement with provinces and territories is to increase the number of Canadians who can have access to quick, timely and appropriate community-based family health team services. And do you expect that need to be met by the three-year timetable here? We expect progress to be made quite, quite significantly on that. It's, it's a key priority of all health ministers. All health ministers understand the importance of primary care, family medicine. We're investing significant resources, which I believe or enough to make many more Canadians able to access family health teams, family medicine in this country. Minister Duclos, really appreciate the time. Thank you for that. Thank you very much, Michael. And that is it for our program tonight. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow. <laughs>